This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today we'll be talking about Celurus, as well as a bunch of dinosaur news. And my voice sounds kind of funny because I have a cold, just so you know. But first we want to say happy holidays to everyone and also a big thank you to our Patreon supporters. Again, we're growing in number and that's really encouraging. We just want to really stress how grateful we are and how that really helps keep us going both just emotionally and <laughs> and of course financially so thank you again for showing your support and we hope that you all enjoy the holidays this season and for those who would like to support us you can check out our patreon page at patreon.com slash i know dino yeah and First in the news is an article that was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America. The article is titled, The Precise Temporal Calibration of Dinosaur Origins. It was written by Claudia Marsicano, Randall Ermis, and others. The authors were interested in how quickly dinosaurs evolved from their ancestors and what drove them to evolve. And the article is behind a paywall, but I think they were studying fossils in the Chañares formation in the La Rioja province of Argentina in South America. It had previously been postulated that dinosaurs evolved very shortly after the Permian-Triassic extinction event, also known as the Great Dying, that killed more than three-quarters of the animals on Earth. And it's one of the biggest extinction events in Earth's history, in fact. So the theory was that since that great dying happened about 252 million years ago, and some of the fossils that had been looked at appeared to be around 237 to 247 million years ago, that dinosaurs evolved very quickly after this massive extinction. And the fossils that these researchers were looking at were originally thought to be in that range as well. They were basing that age range on the strata that the specimens were in, which is basically just like looking at layers of cake or something to figure out what age they are. But that's really not the most accurate way to find the age of a specimen. So the authors wanted to use a more precise technique, and they used high-precision chemical abrasion thermal ionization mass spectrometry, or CA-TIMS, and uranium lead dating 
to try and find a more accurate picture for the origin of the dinosaur clad. So specifically, according to the sciencemag.org, quote, a younger volcanic deposit lying in the rock above these fossils includes zircons, tiny bits of silicate mineral that often contain trace amounts of uranium. Those zircons crystallized about 234 million years ago. The older sediments below the fossil contain zircons that crystallized about 236 million years ago. So obviously that puts the specimens in the 235 million years ago approximate age. So they ultimately decided that dinosaurs as a group, as a clad, evolved in the Carnian period, which is the period about 228 to 235 million years ago. And that's also known as the early late Triassic, which I think is kind of a funny way to describe it, um, which actually works out to be just after halfway through the Triassic in absolute terms, or just for the fun of it, it's like the top of the fifth inning in baseball terms, which is about five to 10 million years later or younger than what was previously thought, which originally they thought it was five to 15 million years after the great dying. Now they're thinking it's more like 15 million years after the great dying. And they also managed to narrow down their origin to a 5 million year or less interval by looking at other geochronologic data. And that 5 million year interval means that other dinosaur morphs, which includes animals that aren't dinosaurs but have general dinosaur-like features, evolved earlier and existed on their own for a time before dinosaurs evolved, whereas earlier we had thought went straight to dinosaurs pretty quickly. And ultimately, that means that dinosaurs evolved more rapidly than previously thought as a group because those dinosaur morphs were around for a little while and then it was a pretty quick transition into dinosaurs. So that's all pretty interesting. They still haven't figured out exactly why dinosaurs succeeded so well while other dinosaur morphs weren't as successful, which I think is possibly a more interesting question. But figuring out that time range is a very important piece of the puzzle. Next in the news, in the Yunnan province in China, construction workers came across dinosaur bones while building a road, which paleontologists from the Institute of Vertebrate Paleontology and Paleoanthropology in Beijing found were two different species of Lufengosaurus, Lufengosaurus magus and Lufengosaurus hunai. Lufengosaurus has only two recognized species. And it's uncommon to find two species in the same genus so close to each other. They were found about 1,600 feet or 500 meters apart. And the Lufengosaurus magus bones include sacral vertebrae, rib bones, pelvis, dorsal vertebrae, tail bones, and hind legs. And Lufengosaurus hunai has leg bones, dorsal vertebrae, and two tail bones. A museum may be built over the fossils, so the road construction workers were building may be diverted, and that's pretty cool. Next, I just wanted to share another gem from Atlas Obscura, an article that highlights John Lazendorf, a hairstylist who had a large collection of dinosaur art, which he used to fit in his 1,250-square-foot apartment in Chicago. He had busts and bronzes of dinosaurs as well as illustrations, so a very varied collection. And paleoartists heard about his collection eventually, and they offered him their art. And eventually, he potentially had the largest collection of dinosaur art ever. And Dr. Phil Curry invited him on a dig and wrote an introduction in the book Dinosaur Imagery about John's collection. 
And John's collection's been displayed in a number of museums. The first one was in 2000 at the Chicago Field Museum when they unveiled Sue the T-Rex. And the Children's Museum of Indianapolis ended up buying his collection for their Dinosphere exhibit, which contains about 500 pieces. And the museum rotates out pieces to go with the themed exhibits. And so now John kept some of his childhood dinosaur toys, but is now working on a new collection of Asian art. That sounds really cool. It's another reason to go see that Indianapolis Children's Museum that looks so cool. Mm-hmm. Next in the news is something that I'm getting more and more interested about. You've probably heard me talk about augmented reality a little bit in the past. And there's a new, well, pretty new app out called Dino on My Desk. How did we find out about this? I don't remember how we found out about it, but as soon as I saw it, I made sure that Garrett knew about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty cool. So it looks like the app launched back in August based on reviews that are in the Google Play Store. But the most recent update is from just a few days ago. So it looks like, you know, it's still a new evolving app. It's not like it's been forgotten. Basically, what augmented reality is... I've talked about virtual reality before, and that's where you put on goggles and you're completely immersed in a new environment. What augmented reality is, is when you are seeing the world as it normally would appear, but on top of that, there is something added to it. So either there's some instructions that could be displayed, or maybe you're playing a game and you can see imaginary game pieces or something. In this case, what the imaginary thing that's projected in real world is a augmented reality dinosaur. So basically the way it works is you print a sheet of paper and it's a very specific sheet of paper so the app knows what to do with it. You put it on a flat surface like a table and then you point an Android tablet or phone at it and it uses the camera to see the sheet of paper and kind of orient the scale of things. And then it puts a 3D generated dinosaur on the screen of the tablet to make it look like it's actually in the room with you. Obviously, if you look at the table without the tablet or the phone, it doesn't look like it's there. You have to look at the tablet screen to see it. But it uses the camera, so the rest of the room looks normal. So it's kind of cool. In their video, it kind of looks like you can either reach in front of the camera where the dinosaur appears to be on the screen. So you're kind of like reaching over the piece of paper, and then, you know, you can see the dinosaur imaginarily. It's a protoceratops, right? <laughs> yes, it is a protoceratops. Um, so you can see the protoceratops sitting there and, you know, kind of play with it imaginary it's really weird though to figure out where to put your hand because the dinosaur obviously isn't actually there and you're looking through a screen at a camera it's kind of like if you're using a series of mirrors to move your arm around it's really weird so in the video it looks like you could interact with it that way i couldn't get it to work i'm not sure if that's just because i can't figure it out because i'm too awkward with it or if it's not actually intended to work that way. Um, but one way that you definitely can interact with it is by touching the touch screen of the device. So, you know, you, you can pet it and you can tickle it and stuff like that. But you have to pet it the right way or it gets angry. Yeah, if you, and if you put your finger close to its mouth, it'll bite at you and stuff. And they made it into a real character, too. The protoceratops name is Plunkett, and they have a children's book about Plunkett, and they're 
plans to release more children's books about different dinosaurs with different names. So I'm sure they'll be developing those soon. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So the creator, Sunil Thankamushi, has been the animation director for several first-person shooter games. But once he had a family, he wanted to do something more interactive and obviously less violent. So he says that Dino on My Desk is an augmented reality app that he created for dinosaur enthusiasts all over. And we're it's right up our alley. Yeah. The first time I had heard the expression dinosaur enthusiast was when I was coming out of my mouth trying to figure out what to call my, ourselves. So it's kind of fun when we see other people calling themselves that too. It's currently a team of seven, including a couple of programmers, animators, and a voice actor, because there's a lot of real character noises that the dinosaur makes. And it's available for download on Google Play, which is Android only for now. I don't know if there's a plan to make a Apple iOS version or not. I didn't see anything on the website. And it's totally free, but you can buy the dinosaur treats. And I think that's all that's available to buy right now. But I'm assuming in the future they might add other dinosaurs like Sabrina was mentioning, or maybe outfits or who knows what they'll come up with. But it's pretty fun. It's free. All you got to do is print out a piece of paper and download it. So it's worth playing with. And since we're coming up on Christmas, we already missed Hanukkah, so I can't include that one. Also, New Year's. Maybe people get New Year's gifts. I don't know. Valentine's Day, possibly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's an article that Shana Montanari wrote in Forbes titled 10 Gift Ideas for Dinosaur Lovers of All Ages. And there's some pretty cool ones in there. Since she's a paleontologist, they're not goofy little inaccurate dinosaurs. Um, She has some more clever stuff. There's a paleontologist action figure that I could see a kid enjoying. She had to put in the limited edition Jurassic World movie set that comes with the T-Rex and Indominus Rex figures. I know at least Mm -hmm. one of our listeners got that set because we got a picture of it through Twitter. Yeah, it looks cool. There are also several crafting sets and books. There's an ugly sweater with a bunch of T-Rexes printed all over it. Oh, I wish I knew about that before my ugly sweater holiday party. Yeah. <laughs> There's also some decorations for the house, like a candle that's an egg hatching with a dinosaur in it. There's a couple of Lego-like toys. I think it's a different brand, but they're pretty neat looking. And then there's a pasta server called Pastasaurus which I've thought about buying before. It looks kind of funny. So if you're looking for a gift for a dinosaur lover. Or a dinosaur enthusiast. We'll post a link on our blog. So it's been less than a month since The Good Dinosaur was released, so that means it's fair game to keep talking about. (laughs) According to Variety, The Good Dinosaur may be Pixar's first box office failure. To break even, the company must earn $500 million, but so far it's only made... About 131 million worldwide. This was a few days ago, maybe a, maybe about a week and a half ago. By the time this episode gets posted, and some people think that it might not make it to 400 million. But the Good Dinosaur has gotten some really great reviews, especially from kids. Actually, the Independent posted a seven-year-old boy's review who opened with, quote, I must mention first that I love dinosaurs, so the Good Dinosaur review will be a good review. End hmm. quote. And he goes on to give a synopsis of the movie and mentions, quote, The most funny part was when Arlo and Spot ate the fruits from the tree and were laughing until their bellies hurt. They swapped their bodies and heads. That was super cool. And he ended his review with, 
quote, the good dinosaur was the best animation I've ever seen. So as Garrett and I had mentioned before, we think that The Good Dinosaur is a really great movie for kids. But interestingly, not every kid loved the movie. And on Tor.com, they posted the reaction of an eight-year-old girl to the movie who thought it was too scary since it looked so realistic and was crying because of Arlo's dad. Still, the movie is known for its beautiful animation, especially the environments. And according to FX Guide, all the environments are 3D geometry that's rendered. And the technical team used a lot of tools, including RenderMan, Houdini, Flip Solver, and Presto. And they built more than 180 fully volumetric skies for all the types of weather to make the weather seem like a character, as well as 3,500 simulations and 20 terabytes of data just for the vegetation. I won't get into too much detail since our show's about dinosaurs, not animation, but for the artists listening to this show, we'll post a link so you can check it out. And since we're talking about dinosaur movies and specifically animated dinosaur movies, Garrett and I recently watched Toy Story The Land That Time Forgot. It was a, I think a Disney Channel special about a half hour long that was playing over Saturday night. And we really enjoyed it. So the tagline, at least according to IMDb, is it's post-Christmas play date and the toys have to go up against the fearsome and aggressive new dino toys. And so there's a little girl, Bonnie, who is introduced in Toy Story 3. She's inherited all of Andy's toys. Andy from the first two Toy Story movies. And she has some of her toys, some of her own toys, like a Triceratops. Yes, named Trixie. And Bonnie goes over to her friend's house to play. She packs up a whole backpack of toys, her favorite toys, including Trixie and Rex. But right before they can start playing, the boy says, hey, I've got this new virtual reality game. (laughs) And Trixie throws her backpack of toys into the boy's bedroom with his toys and then goes to another room and plays virtual reality. And the toys are kind of left to themselves. And Trixie, the Triceratops, is tired of how Bonnie makes her play roles that are not dinosaur related. And she stumbles across this whole world of dinosaur toys, and she's really excited. Yeah, and all the dinosaur toys are like how Buzz Lightyear was before he got played with, where he doesn't know he's a toy. All these dinosaurs think they're real dinosaurs, and that they're this special type of battling dinosaur. So they all like have these battle arenas and they take it very seriously. They do, but Trixie and her friends don't realize that they're taking it so seriously. They think they're just really into their roles as dinosaur toys. Yeah. So we won't spoil the ending, but it was really entertaining and well put together. Yeah, it had all the real uh, main voice actors. It sounded like it was Tim Allen and Tom Hanks doing the voices of Woody or Buzz, so... Pretty cool. So I don't know if that's available for download or purchase anywhere, but if you happen to come across it, maybe on the Disney Channel, they'll play a rerun. You should check it out. It's an entertaining 30 minutes. <laughs> yep, definitely. And last but not least in the news today, Josh Cotton, a paleo artist who you may remember we interviewed back on episode 21 and who has also created an amazing Allosaurus for us. We've posted it on or Twitter and blog, if you want to check that out. He recently released an awesome new video on his YouTube channel, The Doodling Dino. He does a great job of combining both science and art into his dinosaurs. He has a number of really good videos on his channel that you should check out. And his latest video is called Scientific Artist Reimagines the Good Dinosaur. It's a little under 19 minutes long, and we'll post a link to it on our blog. 
And during the video, you can see him create a digital sculpture of a reimagined Arlo. And as he recreates Arlo, he explains the science of the good dinosaur and points out the things that the movie missed. For example, Arlo, the Apatosaurus, would have been extinct long before the movie took place, since Apatosaurus went extinct about 80 million years before the asteroid hit Earth, or missed Earth as it did in the good dinosaur. And because of this, Josh chose to make Arlo an Alamosaurus, which we covered Alamosaurus in episode 51. And to do that, Josh made Arlo's front legs longer than his back legs, which also makes Arlo stand taller. And he also changed Arlo's feet to be more hoof-like and added osteoderms to Arlo's back, since Alamosaurus had them. And the idea is to keep in mind the scientific knowledge about a dinosaur before even starting to design the dinosaur. But also, since The Good Dinosaur is a cartoon, to keep the character cute. So in this case, Josh made Arlo's osteoderms have more rounded edges to keep it more playful. And according to Josh, and I agree, the movie missed an opportunity by not really incorporating science into the character designs. As Josh says at the end of the video, quote, the magic of dinosaurs is they are real. And I like the idea of having it make sense in a time space because there are so many cool dinosaurs to choose from. Why do you want to pick one that doesn't make sense in the time scale? Yeah. As much as I like Apatosaurus. <laughs> yeah, off by several, what was off by like 60 million years or so. 80 million, yeah. Oof. Yep. So thank you to Josh for sharing that video with us. And if you like to watch YouTube videos, then you should definitely subscribe to his channel, The Doodling Dino. Before we get into the dinosaur of the day, we got a couple of good questions from listener Nick via email. So we just wanted to take a moment to answer Nick's questions. And the first question is, since pterosaurs most likely had feathers, does that classify them as dinosaurs again, or maybe even birds? So my favorite way to describe the difference between a bird, a bat, and a pterosaur is based on what their wing is made out of. So a pterosaur, the unique thing about it, its entire wing is basically just one finger with some skin stretched back towards its body. So you imagine like just one huge overgrown finger turning into a wing. And then a bat is a, basically a hand that has become a wing by the finger stretching really long. And a bird is an arm that has evolved in a way that it's become a wing. So that's kind of one way to define them. So it doesn't necessarily matter if it had feathers or you know, what it looked like on the outside. It has more to do with the bone and the evolution of the body structure. So unfortunately, pterosaurs are not dinosaurs, no matter what we find out, unless somehow we find out that they had the same hips and all that kind of stuff. But it seems a little unlikely. And Nick's second question, were theropod teeth generally exposed while their jaws were shut? Or were they more likely to have been concealed like a monitor lizard's? So that's a really interesting question, and I looked around quite a bit about it. Since theropods are such a large group, for the big iconic theropods like a T-Rex, they did have huge teeth, like 12 inches long. And a few episodes ago, we talked about how wide they could open their mouth, and they compared their mouth geometry to crocodiles and other animals that might have had similar feeding styles. And they believe that they rested with their mouth opened a little bit. 
So if their mouth was open a little bit, obviously you would have been able to see their teeth. And since the teeth were so long too, they probably would have overlapped a little bit and stuck out of the mouth a little bit. So I think for a big one like a T-Rex, yes, you would have been able to see its teeth. For some of the smaller theropods that, you know, wasn't a big bruiser with huge teeth, it might have been more into eating small rodents or insects or something. I'm guessing that their teeth probably weren't exposed because they didn't need that wide gape and they didn't need the huge teeth. So within theropods, I, I'm guessing that there's probably different teeth styles, whether or not you could see them outside their mouth. So hopefully that answers your questions. And thanks, Nick, for sending them in in the first place. We're always happy to connect with listeners. Yeah, they're fun questions to think about and research. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. So now on to the dinosaur of the day, which is Silurus. And the name Celurus means hollow tail. It has hollow tail vertebrae. There's only one valid species. It's the type species, Celurus fragilis, which Charles Marsh described in 1879. And the type species consisted of a partial skeleton, most of the arms and legs, and a partial pelvis. And that skeleton is now housed in the Peabody Museum of Natural History, and it was found in the Morrison Formation. In 1980, more bones were found in Wyoming and Utah, and Celurus was the first named small theropod from the Morrison Formation. Charles Marsh only described the vertebrae from the back and tail, and 
It was found in the same area as the type specimen of another genus slash species that he named, Camptonotus dispar, which was later renamed Camptosaurus because the name Camptonotus was already used to describe a type of cricket. Marsh describes Celurus as, quote, an animal about as large as a wolf and probably carnivorous, end quote, though he was not sure that it was a dinosaur at first. He described it more in 1881 and created some illustrations and then classified it in the new order Celuria and the family Celuridae. There's a lot of confusion and different species have been named and moved out of this genus, as is pretty typical for dinosaurs that were named so early on. And Celurus has been grouped with Compsognathids, Tyrannosaurids, and even as basal Manoraptorans. Sometimes it's considered its own family, Celuridae. For a while, Celuridae and Celurosauria were wastebasket taxons for small theropods. Celurus fragilis's skeleton was scattered, and the fossils were found between September 1879 and September 1880. Some of the bones found Marsh classified as a new species, Celurus agilis, based on fused pubic bones that he believed were part of an animal three times larger than Celurus fragilis. In 1888, Marsh also named Celurus gracilis, based on a single claw bone from a small theropod that lived in the early Cretaceous. It was found in Maryland. This is no longer accepted, though. Edward Cope also named some species in Celurus, even with the bone wars going on between him and Marsh. He named Celurus bari and Celurus longicolis. They're both from the Triassic period and found in New Mexico, but then he ended up putting them in their own genus, Coelophysis. In 1903, Henry Fairfield Osborne named Ornitholestes, based on a partial skeleton, and in 1920, Charles Gilmore said that Ornitholestes and Celurus were synonyms, which scientists believed until 1980 when John Ostrom released his study. And Ostrom showed the differences between Ornitholestes and Celurus, and he showed that Celurus fragilis and Celurus agilis were the same, as Gilmore had thought. Dale Russell had thought that Celurus agilis was a species of Elaphrosaurus, based on incomplete information, but John Ostrom showed that this wasn't true. And he also showed that one of the three Celurus fragilis vertebrae Marsh had illustrated was a composite of two vertebrae. Celurus is also sometimes confused with Tenicolagrius. Celurus ornitholestes and Tenicolagrius were the best-known small theropods from the Morris information, but Celurus and ornitholestes have been better described. Celurus had a longer back and neck and longer, more slender legs and feet than Ornitholestes. In 1995, a partial skeleton in the Morrison formation was thought to be Celurus, but a study showed that it was a different genus, Tanicolagrius. So bringing that back, six species have been named to Celurus, although again, there's only one valid species now. In addition to Celurus bari and Celurus longicolis, there was Celurus davisi, which Richard Lidecker named in 1888 based on a neck vertebrae found in England, but that was later named its own genus, the Cocoelurus. And as I mentioned earlier, there was Celurus gracilis, named in 1888, which was based on limb remains, but then Gilmore reviewed the species in 1920 and only found a single claw and proposed it was actually Chirostenodes, but this is now considered dubious. When Ornithilestes was considered synonymous to Celurus, its type species was named Celurus hermani. So that's just a background of how confusing it can all be with dinosaur names. But to recap, there is only one valid Celurus species, and that is Celurus fragilis. Celurus lived in the Jurassic. It was small and bipedal and had long legs, so it was probably fast. And its speed was its 
defense from larger theropods. It was around 29 to 44 pounds or 13 to 20 kilograms and about 7.9 feet or 2.4 meters long. And it was a carnivore. It ate small prey, probably insects, mammals, and lizards, and it was faster than Ornitholestes. It had a long neck and a potentially slender skull, but not much is known about the skull except for part of the lower jaw, which is found in the same area as known Silurus bones and has some similarities, but it's very slender and it's not part of the same known for sure Silurus skeleton. It had long, low vertebrae. Its neck vertebrae had also many hollow spaces, hence its name. And where it was found in the Morrison Formation, at the time, the Morrison Formation was semi-arid with flat floodplains, and vegetation included conifers and ferns. Other dinosaurs found in the area include Ceratosaurus, Allosaurus, Apatosaurus, Diplodocus, and Stegosaurus. Celurus is part of the Celuridae family, and that's a family of small carnivorous dinosaurs that lived in the Jurassic. In 2003, O.W.M. Rahut grouped Celurus, Compsognathus, Cynosauroteryx, and an unnamed Compsognathus-like dinosaur into Celuridae. And then in 2007, Phil Center suggested that Celurus and Tanicolagrius were the only Celurids and were actually not Celurids, but Tyrannosauroids. Again, Celurids were a wastebasket taxon for a while. Dinosaurs that were in the wastebasket taxon and since reclassified include Microvenator, which is a relative of Oviraptorid. Celurosauria includes other theropod groups now, including Alvarezsaurs, Ornithomimosaurs, Therizinosaurs, Dromaeosaurs, and Tyrannosaurs, though at first they only included small theropods. And there's still a lot of questions over how the Silurus genus is related to the others. And our fun fact of the day is that out of the 188 confirmed impact craters that are in the Earth Impact Database, the Chicxulub Crater on the Yucatan Peninsula is the second largest and the largest in the last 2 billion years. So pretty fascinating. There's a bit of a contentious argument where maybe it's number three, but this is according to the Earth Impact Database, which is typically considered the experts. So I'm going with their number. Good call. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Again, if you would like to support us, especially during this holiday season, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks for listening, and until next time. Good day.